John 14, if you would open your Bible to John 14. Worship team, thank you for leading us so well this morning. Appreciate that. Today, we are returning to what we refer to as the farewell discourse of Jesus of John 14 through 17 that we began talking about uh, last week. And uh, quite figuratively, we set the table uh, to the table of the Last Supper that Jesus was having with his disciples. If you remember, uh, Jesus was uh, with his disciples. He washed their feet. He started talking about how he was about to leave started talking about how one of the 12 was going to betray him, and then he uh, dips the morsel, gives it to Judas, and then says, do what you're going to do, Judas, and Judas goes out from there and accelerates the imminent crucifixion that will come of Jesus Christ, and in the middle of this, Jesus starts to speak, and he has said to us, to his disciples, then to us, he said, I share the same glory with my Father. And I am about to leave you, but when I leave you, here's what I want you to do while I'm gone. Love one another. I want you to love one another. Don't forget to do that. As I have loved you, you love one another with the same divine love that exists between the Father and of the Son. And uh, this last Wednesday night, I was uh, talking with one of you uh, after our 6 p.m. Uh, uh, time of prayer, and I want to invite you, if you have been looking for an outlet and saying, man, I want to get more involved with prayer, join us uh, at 6 o'clock. We pray for an hour, but it actually, man, it goes quickly. It seems like that every single time. And so we re- meet right in that room, 102, right over there. want to invite you to that. But after we were done, I was talking with one of you, and we, we were kind of joking at the almost dark humor that comes up right here um, in this account because Jesus has just said these really profound words, love one another, and then Peter is like, yeah, uh, real quick, can we go back to what you just said a second ago, that bit about you leaving, I, I need more there, and, and totally sidesteps this big command that Jesus has given and has said, you just said you're leaving, what, where are you going? And so Jesus tells Peter, yes, I'm going away, but you're going to follow afterwards. He says at the end of chapter 13. And it is with those words of saying, I'm leaving and you're going to come later, that Jesus intends to give a word of comfort to Peter and a word of comfort to us as well. And this is what he says in verse 1 of chapter 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place before you? And if I go to prepare a place before you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Let's pray. Father, our desire is that we would walk out of here with the hope of heaven and the clear, the crystal clear understanding of the way that it has been made possible for us to have that hope of heaven. And Lord, we ask you that you would show us that heaven is not just a place, it is where the presence of the Father is. And let us hold on to that today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, when I was in high school, I became a Christian. I've 
shared that with many of you by this point. And when I became a Christian, the first book that was given toward me, I already had a Bible, but the first book that was given toward me, uh, to me was not uh, Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life. Uh, it wasn't uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Prog- uh, Progress, which used to be given to Baptists in the 16th, in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, really popular then. It was Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. That was the first book that was given to me. And so if you know that name, uh, you know that that is uh, known in the late 2000s, early 2010s, one of the most well-known names of what was called the New Atheist Movement, which, by the way, wasn't actually really new. It was just recycled um, uh, perspectives from atheism that had been uh, repopularized uh, for the current culture. And so I had a friend named John who was in what I would call uh, cage stage atheism, uh, meaning he had just recently said, you know, I'm done with my parents' faith and I'm going this direction and I'm rejecting the existence of a God altogether. I'm not just doubting that there might not be a God, I'm declaring God does not exist. And so that's what it means to be an atheist. And he says, I'm going that direction. Here's a book for you, Aaron. And so I got to know this friend and he was... uh, he was fascinating. By the way, I should say, I started reading that book, got halfway through it, and went, you know, I should probably read the Bible first, so I put that to the side, started reading this book, and I, well, I have, I've never stopped reading this one, and so I highly recommend the Bible. And anyways, my friend John was this incredible combination of being um, very straightforward and hilarious all at the same time. And so you can imagine what it was like when we would go to uh, a, a senior boy's Sunday school uh, class, and he still had to go to church because his parents were Christians, and so he didn't have a choice. And so we're there. I remember one time uh, at a Sunday school class, and the teacher was talking about heaven, and he was talking about the afterlife and what was going to come next. And John started being John, and he started asking pointed questions. And he would say things like, well, how do you know what heaven is like if you've never been there before? How do you even know there's an afterlife because you've never died? How can you speak to what you have not yet seen? How do you really know that there's a heaven? That question. And I have been thinking about that question ever since. How do we know that there's a heaven And then the second, what is it really like since I first heard John ask that question? I should tell you, by the way, um, never argue with a high school atheist uh, publicly. You will always lose, and uh, this teacher lost. And so, listen, here's what I'd like to do this morning. I gave you kind of a roadmap of last week where we were headed. I want to do the same thing today. Uh, I should tell you, we were originally going to go all the way to verse 14, and I discovered along the way in my preparation that was going to be about an hour and a half sermon. And so I know three of you would have appreciated that. Uh, the other 300 of you would have, would have walked out about halfway through. And so uh, the plan is to go to verse 7 today. And so we are going to gaze at the Godhead from the perspective of heaven. And then we'll look at next week the relationship even more deeply of the Father and of the Son. And so we are going to look in this passage at what heaven is all about And then answer the question, how do we get there? How has the way been made possible for us to be there? And so Jesus begins here. You see how he begins? He says, let not your hearts be troubled, verse 1. If you this morning are walking into church 
with heavy burdens, an incredible fear possibly about what tomorrow might bring, a lot of stress. These words are meant to be a comfort to you. Listen to Jesus. He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe in God, believe also in me. To you and I, I hope that doesn't strike you as something that is new to see how Jesus places himself on the same level as God. I have strived to belabor the point that Jesus is of the same nature as his father, the same divine nature. Uh, But to a first century Jew, this would have been shocking because a first century Jew would have memorized Deuteronomy 6, the Shema that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Lord is one. And then to hear Jesus get up there and say, the way you believe in God, you should believe also in me, would be shocking. It would be as if I got up here in this moment and I said, the way you believe in God, church, the way you just sang to him, the way you believe in him, you should believe also in Aaron. And there would be a word that would come up from your gut that you didn't realize was in your glossary, and you would yell out, blasphemy, and you would be right to say that. You would be right. What kind of man claims to be worthy of belief as God? Answer, only a man who happens to also be divine with his father. And you see how the first line of this chapter The son of man that Daniel 7 refers to who will have the rod of iron and will rule with all power is on the same level as God. And so Jesus now picks up on that concern of Peter. So where are you going? What's happening here? And he begins by saying this. Let me tell you about it. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. Now, I know all of our KJV friends here, just all, all the, everything just went off right now because you went, uh-uh, in my father's house are many, man, yeah, wow, okay, mansions, yes, exactly, right? And so the thought may come to your mind when you think of the father's house having these many mansions. Perhaps you think of a nice grassy front lawn. Perhaps you think of a nice big white house with, with pillars in front of it, a valet at your beck and call, Perhaps statues in uh, the living room, golden commode just for you, right? But is this what Jesus is actually describing? Is he actually describing mansions? Actually, you should know this. The King James uh, builds this verse off of the Latin Vulgate that says uh, mansiones. But what we have in front of us, this is why later on after the King James, we get, we get more text and more clarity from the Greek. And the Greek word simply translates rooms. That's it. And so someone says, give me more details, Aaron. That's it. Rooms. Don't go further than what the text says. Except for this point, Jesus says, these rooms are gathered together in my father's house. Don Piper, not John Piper, Don Piper, uh, wrote a book, came out in 2004, perhaps you've read it, called 90 Minutes in Heaven. And it describes his, uh, his story uh, where he was in a tragic car accident. Perhaps you've heard the story. He was in a tragic car accident, and he actually died. And the paramedics came, and uh, they're there on the side of the road, and they began praying uh, that he would come back. And he does come back, and his story uh, in this book that he writes tells about how he had this experience while he was uh, dead, claiming to have been in heaven. 
And then the rest of the book talks about the after effect of that. Midway through the book, he writes on the basis of his experiences. He says, I've changed the way I do funerals. This is a Baptist uh, minister. He says this, now I can speak authoritatively about heaven from firsthand knowledge. And if you know, there's become a whole cottage industry of books that are like this. Heaven is for real. That's another one. Um, How do I say this? with compassion. I'll say it this way. Uh, because there's a chance some of us have read a book like this. I want you to understand this. No one gets to speak with authority about heaven except for Jesus who has revealed his Father to us. Perhaps we should pay, pay less attention to books that are sold and more attention to the word who has become flesh and has given us his book, and what he says in his book about heaven is what we should pay attention to. Primacy should go towards that. And so Jesus tells us here, when he says, this is my father's house, he's telling us that the essence of heaven is not a place, but it is a person. The son reveals the father and tells us where the father is. And so heaven is, yes, where tears will be wiped away. Heaven is where sin will be no more. But most importantly, friend, get this, please. Heaven is where the presence of the Father is. And in John's apocalypse, if you read that, I I love the last few chapters in there. If if you're ever needing a little bit of hope, bam, go go to the end of the book. Just jump to the end of the story. And you will see Revelation 19, 20, and 21. In Revelation 20, John writes there talking about how the first heaven and first earth gives way to the new heaven and new earth and the sea will be no more. And he says this, and I'm not just reading this, I'm reading this for you who need hope this morning. Let this imagery last in your mind. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. When I read that, I mean, doesn't your heart just begin to long for the Father's house when you, when you hear descriptions like that? Like, that's what is yet to come for the Christian. And you, so you consider this kind of hope. For, this, for the atheist, this broken world is as good as it gets. For the Christian, this broken world is as bad as it gets. And knowing that, it gives us the strength to be able to press on and to have endurance because we know that there's an eternity yet to come. It's not like we're so heavenly minded. You ever heard this? It's not like we're so heavenly minded we're of no earthly value. No, it's because we're so heavenly minded. We can live in such a way that the world looks at us and says, you're wasting your life. But instead, we are living sacrificially in the present because we know what is yet to come. And so Jesus tells us, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And this is it right here. 
And so that, that language of Jesus saying, I'm preparing a place for you. What about that, that he says to the disciples? Perhaps our, our, our mind begins to deceive us again of what we picture, like the mansions. And maybe you think of Jesus with a hard hat on. He's got a tape measure. He, he's got brick and mortar. And he's just getting your room ready for you, right? Maybe that's what you have in mind. But I think this is better how we should think of Jesus in this present moment. Like, how do you think of Jesus right now? Do you think of sweet baby Jesus in the manger? Do you think of suffering Jesus on a cross? You ought to think of Jesus, the resurrected Lord with a new body from Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse who will come back. And in this present moment, he is no longer preparing anything. His preparation is done, and I'll tell you about that in a second. What he is doing in this present moment is he is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, Maybe the imagery you ought to have in your mind, Jesus sitting next to his father and saying, you see that one there, I claim him, I claim her, because I am the mediator between God and man. And so what is this preparation that Jesus does? You know it. Jesus has come from the father, he has come into this world, and now he is leaving and preparing that work by way of his death resurrection, and ascension to the Father. Jesus' preparation of heaven for you is his death and resurrection from the cross, from the grave, to the Father. So believe in him this morning. And then you see that Jesus also says something else. See that in the text? He says, not only, not only am I going to this place, not only am I getting it ready for you, but I'm also coming back for you. And so the question then becomes, okay, so when is Jesus coming back? Is that referring to like after he resurrects from the dead and he says to Peter, I'll see you once I rise from the dead? Or is he saying something else? I think the answer is that that return is not the immediate days after his resurrection, but that return come, refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Christians can disagree over the millennial reign of Jesus. You should know I believe that. I believe that there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ. Christians can disagree over uh, the tribulation. Are you pre-trib? Are you post-trib? Are you mid-trib? If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's okay. You can disagree over that. But what Christians don't disagree on, and to be a Christian is to believe that not only has Jesus come and died and resurrected, but that he will return one day to bring all to the Father himself. And so before we go any further, I wanna ask you now a couple questions. So that's the, that's the, the text, that's the theology. Let me, let's get to application. Let me, let me ask you this. How do you think about heaven, really? Is it more based on Disney, the media, and, and books like some that we have referred to this morning, or is it more based off of the words of Jesus who says, I alone am the one who reveals the Father. Where do you get your source material for how you think about heaven? It's the first question. Second question, what is the essence of heaven to you? In other words, what makes heaven so desirable when you think about it? What would you say? This is why I want to go to heaven. What would you say? The answer ought to be, We've been hitting it all so far in the last several minutes that you desire to be in the presence of a living God, the Father. Here's what I would want to argue, friend. I would want to argue 
that if you find this moment boring, if you find it unattractive to worship God on Sunday, if you don't like singing the songs, hearing the word declared, praying, doing all the things that we do when we gather, man, if you don't like worshiping the Lord in this moment, you will not enjoy worshiping him for all eternity. Like, I want to remind you what this hour is at 10 a.m. every Sunday when Bethesda gathers. It is simply a dress rehearsal for what is yet to come. And so when you go back one more chapter from Revelation 20, and then you go to 19 and you see Christ comes, see what comes right before that in chapter 18. There will be a moment when all those who have made up the body of Christ, Christians from all ages that have represented and have been a part of the local church will come together in the one universal church that will be gathered. And at the marriage supper of the Lamb, who was slain, and yet who is the lion who roars, and then on the other hand, the church that will gather together, the bride of Christ, the dress rehearsal will be over, and we will be Jesus finally, face to face, once and for all. That is the hope of every single Christian, is to know that the dress rehearsal ends. Knowing what is yet to come is what gives an 86-year-old man with a heart condition who could go out at any moment, gives him excitement instead of angst and worry. It gives him the expectation of heaven and the ability to chuckle and just say, I can't wait, I can't wait. And it took me going to Germany last summer to meet a man who told me, sometimes God takes us to places we would have never imagined, through moments we wish we would have never had to go through to a place we would never want to leave. And so, friend, here's my encouragement towards you, to you. Aim towards Jesus with your faith, and you will see that you have heaven thrown in, the very presence of the Father. Believe in the Son. And then Jesus says, and you know the way where I am going. The question then is, okay, well, okay, how do we get there, Jesus? And Thomas um, we bash Thomas too easily, I think. Uh, Thomas says what every other disciple is thinking. And he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Verse five, you see that there? Where are you going? How can we know the way? And what I love about this is how dull the disciples are, how slow they are for our benefit. Like God in his sovereignty takes these dummies who ask these kinds of questions for our benefit so it's like a slow pitch so Jesus can give us a home run and knock it out of the park. How can we know the way is the question. About 1,500 years before Thomas asked this question, Moses is standing in front of a burning bush. And in that burning bush, Yahweh tells him that he is going to use Moses to set God's people free from Goshen in the land of Egypt and to take them to the promised land. And then Moses says this. He says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they're gonna ask me, okay, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am the I am. Rover is a dog. Aaron is a man. 
but God is in a category all by himself that, that defies definition. He is who he is. Fast forward to Thomas's question. Fast forward to just John's gospel, and you'll see the Messiah of Galilee on the scene, and he shows up and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6, 35. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, 12. I am the door, he says, of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. John 10, 7. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Are you seeing the connection between the voice and the burning bush and what Jesus of Galilee is saying? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And the answer to Thomas's question, what is the way to the Father? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he adds, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What a word that Jesus says here. John 14, 6. It is a word that comes with a burden and a blessing. Let's go through those words, way, truth, and life, and then look at the burden and the blessing. The way. The problem with Thomas's question that he asked is that he doesn't understand the difference between the way Jesus goes to the Father and the difference through which you and I get to the Father. Jesus goes to the Father by way of a cross. You and I go to the Father by way of Jesus. He claims alone that he is the only way. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way, but he is also the truth. Consider this further. He doesn't say, um, what I speak is true, even though that is true. He, he says, I am truth. In just a few short hours, John records for us that Jesus is going to be standing in a mock trial in front of Pontius Pilate, and Pilate is going to take Jesus to the side, and he takes Jesus to the side, and they have a conversation, and at the end of that conversation, Pilate, in frustration, you can almost imagine him throwing up his hands. He goes, what is truth? And it's just like, ah. He didn't understand that truth was standing right in front of him. Would you understand that at the end of the day, truth is not an idea ultimately or a concept. Truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. And so if you find yourself doubting and not knowing what is up and what is down, what is actually real, do what Christians have been doing, friends, for the last two millennia and look no further than the person of Jesus. He is the way and he is the truth. And then he's also the life. He is the author of life. He is the bread of life. He is the one who says, I have the power and the authority to lay my life down and to take it back up again. Jesus is the one who tells us that all who drink from him will never die. These are not just words of theology, they are words of comfort. What do you say to a woman who has experienced surgery after surgery? What do you say to a mother 
who's experienced the repeated loss of life through miscarriage? What do you say when people have had words of curses, curses of death spoken over them from parents or loved ones? What do you do? What do you say to those kinds of people? You sympathize with them. You walk alongside of them. But then you point them to the one who is the wellspring of life. And you say, I don't know why this happened to you, but let me point you to Jesus. He gives life. He takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I trust the one who is the way, the truth, but also the life. Also the life. And it is at this point I would ask you to consider the severity of what we've been saying. Because you notice that Jesus does not say, I am, I am a way. Uh, the text gives, in the Greek, it gives the definite article before each noun, and it's literally the way, the truth, the life. Contrary to some who speak about their truth, Jesus says, no, 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 I am the truth, okay? Jesus is the only way. He is not one way amongst others, and this is where the burden comes in. And so I would ask you to move beyond the familiarity of John 14, 6, and I would ask you to consider how offensive this actually is. One scholar has said that this is the most disturbing claim in all of scripture. Like think about it this way, the next time you go to Walmart and you see people in the checkout line or you see people in the aisle, ask yourself this question. Does that person actually know Jesus? If not, according to Jesus, he or she is lost. And there's a part of my flesh in this moment that doesn't wanna say the full thing. But here's the full thing. He is lost in Hades. That's what Jesus is saying. You have me, you have nothing. You lose everything. And so you see how exclusive this text is. This text doesn't let you get by and say, all world's religions lead to the same direction. The person, there's a response in our postmodern culture of people who will say, how dare you not be inclusive? How dare you say something so exclusive? One truth, one life. Uh, I believe that I can have my truth. I believe that all religions lead to the same, through the same route, different routes to get to the same location, whether it's nirvana, heaven, paradise, whatever. How arrogant of you to think that you have the only truth. I'm gonna put a picture up on the screen. Uh, maybe you've heard of this before. There's a um, well-known Indian parable, and the parable goes like this. Uh, there was several blind men who came up to an elephant, and they, they touched the elephant, and uh, one touched the ear, and he said, the elephant is like a fan. The other touched the, elef the elephant's um, tusk and says, the elephant is like a sphere. Another said, touched the tail and said, it's like a rope. You can kind of see from the picture there. And so you see that in each case, as the blind man touches the elephant, he is able to discern a part of the elephant, but not the whole. All of these experiences were partially correct. And so typically this parable can be used in this way. Justine, actually, when we were in California, this was, this was a, a story that was included in her elementary curriculum. And I said, well, hold on a second. Uh, this parable can be taken this way. Let us not be so arrogant to think that we have the monopoly on truth to make exclusive claims when we can only see one part of the whole. That's how this is taken. I would say there's actually one glaring problem here, and this is the problem that theologians have pointed out for quite a long time. 
You put it back. You put it back. Someone has to not be blind to be able to see the whole elephant. Someone has to either have the blindfold taken off or be able to see clearly, to be able to say all of those people had part of the whole, and they are therefore making an exclusive claim. Or, or let me turn around and put it this way. I could say to the person who says, that's the whole elephant, and I could say, how dare you be so arrogant to think that you are the only one who is not blind? And so the person who says, all religions lead to the same destination, or all religions have part of the truth, man, that person's being just as exclusive as the person who says, Jesus is the only way. Do you see what I'm saying here? Everyone is exclusive. It's just a matter of what you're exclusive about. We all have our beliefs. And so the question is not whether you're exclusive or inclusive. We're all exclusive. The question is whether you are right or wrong. And what I would say to my friend John, if I could go back in time to that, to that high school gathering um, in that Sunday school class, I would say, how do I know that Jesus is the only way to heaven and here is what heaven is all about? Aaron would say, I stake my life on the guy who came back from the dead and his followers who were willing to die for that belief. The reason I believe that heaven is the way Jesus describes it and that Jesus is the only way, I believe that because there is an empty tomb, an empty grave. And this is where the blessing comes in. So that's the burden. Here's the blessing. The blessing is that Jesus' words tell us that there actually is a way. And I want to give you kind of two categories in your mind to make sense of this. General revelation and special revelation. There are those who point to general revelation and say, look at the heavens, look at the look sun, moon, and the stars, look at... Look at my son's two beautiful blue eyes, uh, each one of them. And you will see from that that there is a creator who is good and wise and powerful. But by looking at nature, you can only go so far. That's general revelation. God reveals himself to all men at all times through what he has created. But then there's special revelation that tells us that that doesn't take us far enough. You would never get John 14 by just looking at the moon and the stars. Someone has to tell you. Someone has to speak. And so special revelation, God reveals himself in specific ways. He can reveal himself through a burning bush to Moses. He can reveal himself through Isaiah, who is supposed to write what God says down. He can reveal himself through his son, who lived for 33 years on earth. These are all immediate ways of God's special revelation. But for you and I, we have it mediated to us through this book, which is so precious. Do you realize that there is no way for you to know about heaven unless God had mediated it through the written word? And that word tells us that we have hope that there actually is a way for us to be with the Father, and that is through Christ alone. And so what I would ask you this morning is to consider the implications of this and what we're called to do if this is all true. The first is this, is that we would actually speak the truth and love to our neighbors and that we actually do believe an exclusive message. It means that neither Joseph Smith, it means that neither Muhammad, Buddha, 
the Virgin Mary or Aaron Garza can get in the way of Jesus Christ. Christ alone is the only way to salvation. That's what that means. And then with that, as we communicate that message, let us be careful that we don't use empty platitudes and empty statements to our neighbor and say things like, well, we're all part of God's family. When actually that's not truthful. If we believe in Jesus, we believe that you must know him or you are lost. There is a certain point, friend, in your conversation that you are having with your lost friend, whether you are a keyboard warrior, whether you do door-to-door evangelism, whether you are a sidewalk prophet, or whether you are doing relational evangelism. Get in and know him, and then you're going to tell him about Jesus. We're at some point you are going to have to say that Jesus is the only way. That point in the conversation is coming. And so I would ask you, as I have hit on this point, you can see hard this morning, I would ask you to consider that the core of the gospel message is an offensive one to a lost world. If you really believe this message, you cannot be a friend of this world. The more seriously you take this message, the more the world will hate you. And I'm not, being, I'm not overdoing it here. Jesus says, if, if the world hates me, they're gonna hate you. Because in this offensive message, it proclaims that everyone is a sinner and it proclaims that Jesus is the only way. And so I ask you, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Or like Jesus says when many walk out on him, will you turn back from me as well? Will you turn back from Jesus? So Jesus concludes these words to Thomas's question and he ends in verse seven. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And as with these words of rebuke to Thomas, we see that there is something far more intimate than any of the 12 had had realized, that there is a unity and a revelation that when you see Jesus, you have seen the Father. And this is what we're beginning to talk about that's going to take us into the next couple weeks, this relationship between the Father and the Son. It is possible to be close to the presence of God and have missed it your whole life. And Jesus does not want that for you. He wants you to see him for who he truly is this morning. Christians believe an exclusive message. But they do it because they believe the person behind that exclusive message who has prepared the way to the Father's house. And so if you know the way, take hope and comfort and rejoice and tell others. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Can you think of anything better to dwell on as we go out from here than the hope of heaven that Christians will have for all eternity? I, I can't think of things far greater. If you have that, rejoice and worship in your God today. And if you don't yet have that, today is the day to believe that Jesus is the way and he has made that way possible on a cross and he has done it for you. This is who our Lord is. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.